Hi, this is Lily DeHoya Sanderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Thank you for joining me today. I appreciate your continued support and welcome to any new listeners. Thank you for joining me. I do want to mention a couple of housekeeping things. I hope you had a chance to listen to last week's if you're interested. Last week, it was 2 Nephi chapters 1 and 2. And if you're wondering why they are missing from this sequence, it's because I was a guest on Follow Him. So you can go either to YouTube or podcast listening for Follow Him over that week to cover those chapters. We have a lot of time on Follow Him, so there was a lot to discuss. And those are two really marvelous chapters. So I hope that you enjoyed studying those on your own or with family members last week, and that here we are again now for 2 Nephi chapters 3 to 5. Now, pretty soon, I'm going to have posted on Patreon a little segment on teaching children compassion, how to be more compassionate. And this is not a small thing in a world that is waxing cold. And we see trouble on every side, a lot of anger and hostility and fights, and it can be right there at home where they're bickering or plaguing each other. And there are some things that we can do. So let's go over to Patreon if you're interested in that. I am going to also add a segment to that podcast on how fathers play a big role in developing empathetic adults. They play a big role with their children in developing empathetic adults. Really some fun connections there that I hope are soothing and inspiring. If you're interested, go to patreon.com forward slash choosing glory, and you can subscribe for that extra content at the second or third levels. And I really appreciate all of you who are subscribing. This means a great deal to the continuation of the podcast. I wish I could explain all of the details of that, but suffice it to say, I'm very grateful and you are making a big difference. Now, Lehi's last message to Joseph and to his grandchildren begins here in chapter 3, but we're actually going to just go in some reverse order a little bit. I'm going to jump around a little bit this week, but after his last message in chapter 3 and chapter 4, we have the account of Lehi's death and burial, and then what we refer to as the Psalm of Nephi begins in chapter 4 partway through verse 17, and we're going to spend a little time on that. It's a marvelous, marvelous piece of scripture. Then in chapter 5, here we go again. Once Lehi is gone, Laman and Lemuel seek to take Nephi's life. They want to kill him. And I hope you did think about what I mentioned before, that this is not just rebellion. I mean, they had let their appetites and I talked about this last week on Follow Him, that Second Nephi 2 verse that talks about the will of the flesh and the evil which is therein, which giveth the devil power to captivate. That's exactly what we see with Laman and Lemuel. What were their appetites? Well, pride. They were the older brothers. They didn't like their younger brother telling them what to do. They didn't want to leave Jerusalem. They liked all their nice stuff and their friends. Anyway, it could have started just as simply as that. They were a little lazy. They didn't want to have to seek and study and pray and fast in order to know whether these prophecies of their father were true and if the Lord had something for them. So maybe it starts slowly, but the will of the flesh and the evil which is therein, which as I described last week, is the appetites. That's what's wrong with the flesh. Now, when I say that's what's wrong with the flesh, give me a little latitude there. 
because the flesh is a great gift. We are not those who think that you have to hate the flesh or punish the flesh in order to be godly. Not at all. We need to integrate our spirit and our body and create this integrated harmony toward the good, toward truth, light, intelligence, so that we can be like God, because God is an embodied spirit. He has both spirit and flesh. They just don't fight. His appetites have been completely mastered to the good. And now those appetites can give him great joy and fulfillment because they are harnessed to the good. And that's the goal. It's not to see ourselves in this everlasting war and hate our own flesh. Not that. But to manage it, to harmonize it, to integrate it with the good, and to let our spirit gain that mastery in directing those appetites for good. So this is such an important principle, and we're going to see it throughout all of Scripture, throughout our lives, and we see it with our children. And this is why I've talked so many times about how it's so important to help our children work on harnessing their natural man, to develop self-control and delayed gratification, just a note again, I talk about that at great length in my book, Choosing Glory. Choosing Glory shows how important it is to leave telestial realm appetite satisfaction and immediate gratification and move into a terrestrial realm of self-control and delayed gratification. And to teach our children to do that is a parent's chief responsibility, I would say, right after taking care of their physical needs and, of course, loving them. But then if we don't teach them that, we are betraying a trust. Now, they make their own choices, and they may choose as they grow to pursue their appetites. But if we haven't made a diligent effort to help them learn the blessing of self-control and delayed gratification, then there's more we can do. So lots of places to go for that. I have a lot of parenting information on Patreon, three videos that I talk about parenting skills, really valuable material. Check it out on Patreon. You can do a search and you can find those quite easily. Also, the Daniel podcast on Follow Him back in the Old Testament, the second half of that, I talk about part of that parenting skill set, but it's much more discussed and taught more clearly and completely on the Patreon videos. So anyway, lots of places to go for good parenting information, but there is a lot of bad parenting information out there, so be picky if it is not oriented around of course, with the context of love, loving our children enough to incentivize appropriately their self-control and delayed gratification. If we're not doing that, there is more we can do. And God wants us to learn how to do that, to discharge that parental responsibility more completely as we go. If our kids are grown, that's okay. We can still learn those things and implement as much as we can and share it with our children if they're interested not take over the parenting of our grandchildren. We have to be diplomatic and careful about that, but we can share to the extent that our children may be interested. Others may be interested as well. Okay, I'm going on here. We're going to talk then in chapter five about, just briefly, want to touch on a few things. The Lord warns Nephi that he needs to flee into the wilderness with those who will follow him, meaning those who want to be righteous. And again, just to finish that thought, because Laman and Lamuel do not control their appetites, the spirit of the devil enters in and continues to grow in them and extinguish the light and turn them toward darkness so that they become murderous. Again, that does not happen in a day. 
It's the yielding to appetites that allows Satan entry. So again, so important for ourselves and our children. So now Nephi is warned and he takes the people that want to be good and they go into the wilderness, several days travel with their tents and they set up in a new place. And the people who love this leader, Nephi, call the land Nephi. And this is going to be referred to throughout the Book of Mormon as the land of Nephi, the land of their first inheritance. Well, you know, first inheritance is that landing spot, but very quickly they are needing to leave and develop the land of Nephi. And that is where they build the temple. Now, just prior to that, verse 11, it says, and this is nice, the Lord was with us, we did prosper exceedingly. And I pointed this out back in the Old Testament episode of Follow Him about Joseph, that there's a chapter in the Old Testament near the end of Genesis where it talks about Joseph and it says many times the Lord was with him. And the point that I made then and that I make again now is that it's not that the Lord has favorites. It's that we decide whether or not we are with the Lord. The Lord was with Joseph because Joseph was with the Lord and the Lord will be with us if we choose him and we live according to his precepts, then we too can be prospered in whatever condition, in the ways that ultimately can give us the best opportunity for exaltation in the highest level of the celestial kingdom. That is true prosperity. It's not really just about money. It's not just about things or health or seeming earthly success. Sometimes we look at our lives and we think everything's going wrong. It's not about that. It's about what can the Lord do through this experience to prosper me spiritually, to prosper me in preparation for becoming conformed to the image of Jesus Christ so that I can be with him and prepared to be at the level of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and Nephi and those righteous that were with him. Okay, they build this beautiful temple. Oh, but first, verse 14, they make swords after the manner of the sword of Laban. And again, remember that throughout the Book of Mormon, Laman and Lemuel and all their descendants who are taught this everlasting hatred for the Nephites are told they stole the brass plates and they stole the sword of Laban so that they could, you know, take our inheritance and be unrighteous. And they pass along that hatred to generation after generation. It's really evil. And I've talked about peoples who are doing that now. And anti-Semitism is so often exactly that. It's this everlasting hatred. Basically because, you know, our forefathers liked your father better than ours. I mean, because Abraham kept Isaac and as directed by the Lord, sent Ishmael with his mother Hagar into the wilderness. And there it was. Isaac becomes one of the forefathers of the tribes of Israel, and Ishmael becomes one of the forefathers of the Arab nations. And there is another everlasting hatred. How tragic that we are witnessing the evil that happens in our very day and our very time. In verse 18, it tells us, It came to pass that they would that I should be their king. This is Nephi speaking, of course. But I, Nephi, was desirous that they should have no king. Nevertheless, I did for them according to that which was in my power. Now, this is beautiful. We see that there are righteous kings that will reign over the Nephite people, prophet kings. But this is a higher level. Nephi could take the power of kingship over this people. They love him so much. They trust him. They know that he'll never do anything other than 
to bless or help them and teach them the truth and encourage them to live it. Nevertheless, he doesn't want that kind of power. And maybe this reminds you of George Washington. In fact, there's a little child's book I remember that my kids got from the library years ago that was something about the man who would not be king or something similar to that about George Washington, because he also was offered kingship in the United States after the successful conclusion, successful for the United States, of the Revolutionary War. And he would not take that power into himself. Now, these are impressive things that some great men do. Think about how we say power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But there are men and women who will not be corrupted. They will not. They could take more. They could have more power. They could have more control or wealth or whatever it is, and they refuse it because they just want to serve. And this is the Christ-like pattern. He that would be the greatest of thee needs to be the servant of all. He that, you know, is last is first and first is last, like really, you're not getting it. Remember, he kept telling them, you want to be the best, you want to have some kind of position, but that's not how it goes. I'm not suggesting that there aren't times for leadership. I'm saying that what is in our heart really matters. And if we are seeking recognition, if we are seeking positions or certain callings or certain things of uh, temporal profit, then we can examine ourselves and think about this terrific example. There are so many others, of course, of people who could have had more power than they would take into themselves because they just wanted to serve. So that's verse 18 of chapter 5. And then it talks about a mark being put on the Lamanites to keep them separate. Now, let's talk about that for a minute. I know that this is, we're in a world that is so politically correct that this even becomes controversial. And let us not go there, okay? I'm going to mention the word discrimination here, which has become a bad word, but didn't used to be. In fact, there was a time where people might use the phrase, you know, oh, that person has discriminating tastes, and they meant it as a compliment, meaning that they didn't just accept everything, but they actually went for items or experiences of higher quality, that they were discriminating because they could choose between things of different values. So I went to the Oxford Online Dictionary, and as we might expect, the very first definition was including these words, unjust or prejudicial treatment of different categories of people, and especially on the grounds of race or ethnicity and things like that. But back in the day, I think that this second definition might have appeared as the first definition in another age. And discrimination is defined this way in the second definition, recognition and understanding of the difference between one thing and another as in discrimination between right and wrong. Let me say that again. Discrimination, the recognition and understanding of the difference between one thing and another, particularly as it might pertain to right and wrong, or good, better, best, or any other number of important decisions where things are not the same. Now, all these things have become really negative in our society these days. And we want our children to push back against that and to teach them that the Lord has discriminated many times and still does because he 
can recognize and understand the difference between his children, between the choices that they make. And some he loves and helps them prosper, and others he brings a scourge, which is, again, the Lamanites or the seed of Laman and Lemuel are brought to be a scourge. That's in verse 25 of chapter 5 here in Second Nephi. So he can tell the difference, and he utilizes it for good. So we know that he discriminated in terms of who could have the Melchizedek priesthood. Back in the Old Testament days, after the children of Israel came back into the Promised Land, only the prophets could have the Melchizedek priesthood. There was a discriminating policy in place. Only the direct seed of Aaron, the direct sons of Aaron, could have the Aaronic priesthood. Only the tribe of Levi could have the Levitical priesthood and serve in the temples in that function. So there were times of discrimination. Christ came to earth, and during his earthly ministry, he discriminated. Remember, he talked about, I've come only to the house of Israel. He did make some exceptions for a purpose, but it was mostly to teach his apostles something, because it wasn't that he didn't love the Samaritans or the Gentiles. He is no respecter of persons. But he had an order of operations that it involved discriminating in whom he offered the gospel to in its entirety during his earthly ministry. And he said, I'm only come to the house of Israel. Again, there were some exceptions that he made to teach his disciples but or and his apostles, but he did not really go to the Gentiles. And But after his death and resurrection, what does he tell his apostles? Go to the Gentiles. Now it's time for another stage of the order of operations. But there was discrimination. There is discrimination. Knowing the difference between men and women is discrimination. But every time you hear that word now, you might still have sort of a negative feeling about it because of the way it's constantly being demonized. And yet, can we get a little better at our critical thinking? And can we say that like not all discrimination is prejudice? Not all of this recognition and understanding of the difference between one thing and another is wrong. It's actually important so that we can know the difference between right and wrong. Men and women are different. Why is this controversial? And yet we're in a world where good is called evil and evil is called good. And can we help our children become good critical thinkers and recognize that discrimination is not always bad? I hope that we are highly discriminatory in choosing with whom we associate. Now, that doesn't mean we hate people. That doesn't mean we do not open the doors or say visitors welcome and reach out to all and recognize their worth as children of God. But who do we let be our closest friends and associates? I hope it's not people who are living in a way that influences us in a negative sense. And I guess I'm speaking especially to youth because they need to be careful about what friends they choose, who they hang out with, what parties they go to, and then eventually who they date and who they marry. Those are all spaces and experiences where I really hope that they will be discriminating and know the difference between a good choice and a bad choice of companions in their youth and then certainly their husband or wife in their marriages. And that has to be preceded by discrimination in whom they date. Let's think about these things. <laughs> Make sure we explain them to our children. There's a, this nice phrase from which they have taken the title of the lesson, verse 27, we lived after the manner of happiness. It's a lovely phrase. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about happiness here in a moment, but I'm going to leave it there for right now. Just, it's such a good, good phrase. And verse 
34, the very last verse of chapter 5, it sufficeth me to say that 30 years had passed away and we had already had wars and contentions with our brethren. How quickly it began. So much everlasting hatred there. How tragic is that? And the envy that went with it and the desire to impose what they thought was justice on the situation instead of letting go and letting God. Now, let's go to chapter 3. So forgive me, I am jumping around a little bit. We'll end in chapter 4. But chapter 3 is Lehi to his youngest son, Joseph. And because he named his son Joseph, obviously in memory of Joseph of Egypt, he talks a great deal about the prophecies of Joseph, which we do not have. But as Nephi says at one point here, that there are none greater than the prophecies of Joseph. Not many greater. That's actually the beginning of chapter 4, but I'm going to jump there for a second. Of the prophecies which he wrote there, there are not many greater. And they were on the plates of brass. And we don't have these particular prophecies that were given by Joseph of Egypt, but they are shared here in part by Lehi to his son Joseph. And they're quite beautiful. Now, of course, here very significantly is a prophecy concerning Joseph Smith and that his name would be the same as Joseph of Egypt, and that his father's name would be the same. So we have a very specific telling about Joseph Smith. Of course, there's also a prophecy about Moses and some specifics there that Joseph made. Joseph saw that. He saw that his people would go into captivity, and he saw that they would be led out by a mighty leader and prophet, Moses. But then we have this great prophecy about Joseph Smith, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. I just want to say I am so grateful for the prophet Joseph Smith, and I hope that as we read and study the Book of Mormon this year, that it's never far from our thoughts that this is available to us because of the fulfillment of this prophecy through Joseph Smith, that he would be brought forth a seer, a prophet, a restorer, a revelator, and that he translated these plates for us and for the world. And that it is because of him that we have access to these marvelous truths that complete the, our understanding of the plan of salvation. The Bible is a wonderful book. Without the Book of Mormon, I don't know where we would be. Well, look around and we can see where the rest of the Christian world is and how quickly they are losing their way. There are anchors in the two Testaments coming together, this Old Testament, this New Testament, and this other witness of Jesus Christ that is in the Book of Mormon. I know Chris was impatient always with people's criticisms of Joseph Smith and their doubts of Joseph Smith. And he often would just say to his family, to me, someone wants to complain about Joseph Smith. I'm sure he said it in other circles as well, but I don't think he was unkind about it, but he was pretty clear. If you want to complain about Joseph Smith, go take 60 to 90 days and write a volume, 531 pages long, 275,000 words that has the power of the Book of Mormon, that has brought millions to an understanding of Jesus Christ and a testimony of the restored gospel. Like, Try that in 60 or 90 days, and then you can come and complain to me about Joseph Smith if you're successful. Now, I want to jump to this. In this chapter, and I've, it's funny, I never counted before, but the term, the fruit of thy loins, or the fruit of thy brethren's loins, that term, the fruit of thy loins, or something very likened to it, the seed of thy loins, 
is used about 20 times. 20 times in one chapter. And it really made me think about that phrase. Now, he's doing a lot of prophecies here about, you know, the Book of Mormon, which will be written by the seed of this righteous branch of Israel that's broken off, but also the seed of Joseph's loins through the Jews, because that group will also bring forth a great book of scripture, the Bible, and that those things will come together, and all of that will be a great blessing in the latter days. But he uses this phrase, the fruit of thy loins, a lot. And here's kind of the punchline of that idea in verse 16 at the end. I will preserve thy seed forever. And this is a promise made by the Lord to Joseph. I will preserve thy seed forever. Now, it made me think about posterity. And I thought about that wonderful phrase that we hear often in the temple, that that we may have joy and rejoicing in our posterity. We hear it in other settings as well. Joy and rejoicing in our seed, in our posterity. And I thought about God's mission statement, Moses 139. Behold, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. And man is his posterity, his spiritual children that he organized from intelligence and gave spirit bodies to, and then presented this plan of coming to mortality to provide physical bodies for us and give us the chance to be with him forever and like him. And I thought that is his joy and his rejoicing is that he has made it possible to give this opportunity to each one of us to become like him and have a fullness of joy. And God's telling us that we can have a taste of that now if we can have joy and rejoicing in our posterity. But let's think about that for a minute. It's not automatic. I heard from a woman recently, and bless her heart, she wrote a beautiful email of comfort to me and talked about some ways that she has felt help through the podcast. And please, please know how much I appreciate the prayers and the thoughts that are being offered for me and my family. I wish I could respond to every single person who has contacted me in some way, or all of you who might be praying for us, even without making contact. I feel it. I'm so grateful for it. I love, I love you for that. And I want you to know of my awareness and gratitude of that generous, generous action on our behalf. I want to say that in this email, this wonderful woman talked about how much joy she had in her posterity up to a point and then how life turned and some of her children had challenges to their faith and testimony and have not yet resolved those things and how difficult that has been for her. And of course, our hearts break when our children struggle and have pain and sorrow. And especially if they lose their way, there are so many ways that the love we have for our children can magnify our pain. The more we love, the more vulnerable we are to that pain. We know this. And yet we also know the purpose for that pain, which is that it will be swallowed up in joy eventually. And I just thought about all that in conjunction with this repeated message about posterity from Lehi to Joseph. 
And I thought too about something I saw recently. I'd heard about it before, but something popped up again about DINKS. Don't know if you've heard that phrase. It's an acronym for dual income, no kids. D-I-N-K, DINKS. Dual income, no kids. And I thought, how much posturing and social media posting and whatever apparently there is from this group saying how happy they are that they don't have kids that are just going to make you miserable and cost you lots of money. And because they have two incomes, they have all this access to the world's goods and they're way into the consumerism of life and, you know, how foolish we are to spend our time and money on children, especially when, yes, they can break your heart. And they do. They break our hearts, right? That happens. At some point or another, our kids break our hearts. Now, not forever, but they sure can hear. And people can get locked in that unhappiness. We have more and more in the scientific literature, except I don't don't know, whatever scientific literature means anymore, because it's so politically oriented so often and has an agenda to it. Nevertheless, there are studies that show that a lot of women are unhappy being at home and that, that there is a lot of trouble in family life. And certainly there is. Satan's raging on the planet. This is his last big stand before Christ comes and he is pulling out the stops. And yes, he's going after our children on every level, on every level. They're having all kinds of things come at them and they are struggling and we are struggling. It doesn't matter how old our children are. They could be adults and they can still lose their way. So let me address that for a moment. I believe that the reason God has joy and rejoicing in his spiritual posterity is because he knows how it ends. And he knows that everyone ends up happy. Everyone, all his children in his home are many mansions. And he has prepared a place for every one of us. And because of Jesus Christ and the magnificent atonement of Christ, even if The rebellious, well, and this is not an if, the rebellious will have to spend some time in hell if they have not repented in this life in order to balance the scales of justice. But after that debt is paid, then everyone is redeemed from hell. Hell is only temporary. See section 19 of the DNC. And they will be brought into one of the mansions and be at a level that they would accept that they were able to choose, that they decided to prepare for, and that it will bring them happiness. Not a fullness of joy, but there will be much well-being. And we will know that all the people we love are happy. And God will know that all of his children are happy, except that very small exception of the sons of perdition, which know what they're doing. They know what they're doing. They know what they're giving up, and they give it up anyway. You can't feel sorry about that. Everybody else is going to be happy and at peace in God's kingdom. And I don't believe we're going to be wrenched apart from our loved ones. We may live in a different place or a different kind of state, but we will know that everyone's okay. And I don't know exactly how that works, but I trust that God would not give us this great love for our children and then rip us apart forever. Although we may live a different kind of life in a different realm of glory. That is very clear from the scriptures. Let me read something that President Nelson said that I think speaks to why we can get locked in unhappiness now. And sadly, we have too many people who are not enjoying family life. Now, even with all its troubles, we need to find the love of God and feel the love of God. 
President Nelson from his October 2020 speech called Let God Prevail. One of the Hebraic meanings of the word Israel is let God prevail. Thus, the very name of Israel refers to a person who is willing to let God prevail in his or her life. The word willing is crucial to this interpretation of Israel. Not long ago, the wife of one of our grandsons was struggling spiritually. Remember this story? Just from three and a half years ago now. I will call her Jill. Despite fasting, prayer, and priesthood blessings, Jill's father was dying. She was gripped with fear that she would lose both her dad and her testimony. Late one evening, my wife, Sister Wendy Nelson, told me of Jill's situation. The next morning, Wendy felt impressed to share with Jill that my response to her spiritual wrestle was one word. The word was myopic. Jill later admitted to Wendy that initially she was devastated by my response. She said, I was hoping for grandfather to promise me a miracle for my dad. I kept wondering why the word myopic was the one he felt compelled to say. Now, you know, myopic means short-sighted, right? After Jill's father passed on, the word myopic kept coming to her mind. She opened her heart to understand even more deeply that myopic meant nearsighted, and her thinking began to shift. Jill then said, myopic caused me to stop, think, and heal. That word now fills me with peace. It reminds me to expand my perspective and seek the eternal. It reminds me that there is a divine plan and that my dad still lives and loves and looks out for me. Myopic has led me to God. I am very proud of our precious granddaughter-in-law, said President Nelson in this speech. During this heart-wrenching time in her life, dear Jill is learning to embrace God's will for her dad with an eternal perspective for her own life. By choosing to let God prevail, she is finding peace. Can we plug in our own name and circumstances? Of course we can. Of course we can. Whatever our troubles, whatever our heartbreak, can we stop, think, and heal? Can we be filled with peace? Can we expand our perspective and seek the eternal? There is a divine plan for each one of us. And our loved ones who have gone on before still live and love and look out for us. This can lead us directly to God and our Savior at a closer level than ever before. And it's not just for those who we have lost to crossing over that threshold into the spirit world and moving on. It's not just for that loss. It's for the loss of a child who turns their back on the things we have shared with them or that we have desired for them. It's that loss as well. It's for terrible health or devastating disease. It's for financial reversals. It's for all kinds of troubles that come to us. How often do I think of Job? Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. And why? Because this is not a place where God is concerned with our comfort. He is concerned with our progress. He wants us to become more and more like him. And he wants to be able to trust us as we trust him so that as we come to trust him, because that's what that's about too, is trusting God and his plan. So here we go. The Psalm of Nephi, chapter four, I'm going to start in second Nephi chapter four, part way through verse 17. My heart exclaimeth, O wretched man that I am. 
you know, as I read this this time, and these are such beautiful words. I have been in in love with this section of scripture mm, most of my adult life. O wretched man that I am, yea, my heart sorroweth because of my flesh. My soul grieveth because of mine iniquities. I am encompassed about because of the temptations and the sins which do so easily beset me. Let's pause for a moment. Is Nephi encompassed about with, with sin and temptation? Well, he's one of the good guys. We know that. He's already a prophet. He's had angels come to protect him and to talk to him, and he's been carried away on high mountains, and he has been instructed of the Lord directly, and he has followed he has learned to go and do. And I said just two weeks ago, I guess, that he is a titan of faith. He responds to suffering in the exemplary way that can help each one of us if we follow that path and suffer like Nephi. So why is he so beset? Well, you have to turn the page and look down at the end of verse 27. Why am I angry because of my enemy? He got angry at them. Now, you know, our answer could be, well, Nephi, they were trying to kill you. So, you know, we kind of understand that response. But a couple of things here. First of all, Nephi is not interested in meeting the standards of humankind. He wants to meet the standard of Christ. And he is holding himself to a higher standard, a celestial way. He's thinking celestial. He's choosing glory. He's choosing celestial glory, and he doesn't want to be angry at his brothers because that's reactive. He doesn't want their behavior to select his behavior as well. And every time we react to somebody in anger or we let our pain react and we retaliate or we strike back when we've been hurt, we're choosing celestially. Or even if we are just set on justice, that might be more terrestrial if we're not just striking out. But it's still not celestial because we're getting caught up in the injustice of the world that is required to move us on to a more celestial path. And Nephi wants the whole enchilada. He wants celestial glory at the highest level. So he's like, I'm not okay with getting angry even at them who are trying to murder me. He wants to be like Jesus Christ. So he is struggling with his feelings, and so do we sometimes. And it might not be because we're angry at our brethren, because most of our brethren are not trying to kill us. It could be this. Let's go back. Maybe what I would write would be more like this. O wretched daughter of God that I am, yea, my heart sorroweth. Because of my loss, my soul grieveth because my husband isn't with me anymore. I'm encompassed about because of the sorrows and the weakness, which can be overwhelming. And when I desire to rejoice, my heart groaneth because of my loneliness, my having to adapt to a life without him. Nevertheless, and this is such a turning point, I love this, nevertheless, I know in whom I have trusted. We're in verse 20 now. My God hath been my support. He hath led me through mine afflictions in the wilderness, and he hath preserved me. He hath filled me with his love, verse 21, even unto the consuming of my flesh. But that's my choice. I could choose to reject that love, but I choose to feel it. I choose to 
always keep it close and to absolutely trust in it and know that everything that God does and allows is because of his love for me and for each one of us. I'm going to jump ahead. This is all so beautiful. I hope you have read and pondered and read again and pondered again. I hope we don't wait four years to read this again and again. I hope, you know, many of us try to read the Book of Mormon every year. I have not been successful at that personally, but I'm always in the Book of Mormon every year. And I love the challenge, and I'm working on that to try to complete that every year as well. But I am in the Book of Mormon every year, no matter what else we're studying. And I hope that this particular section is one that we ponder every year of our lives. I want to read, let's see, a few more parts here. Verse 23, Behold, he hath heard my cry by day, and he hath given me knowledge by visions in the nighttime. 24, By day I have waxed bold and mighty prayer before him. My voice have I sent up on high. And angels came down and ministered unto me. Are we feeling that, brothers and sisters? We are not alone. We all have guardian angels, loved ones, family members from who knows how many generations before who are closer to us than we know. So many of our prophets have said this. We cannot see them, but they can see us with greater clarity than ever, and they can help us. They can bless our children. They can be a strength if we allow ourselves to be spiritually sensitive, if we cultivate that, and it has to come from belief because Faith precedes the miracle, and the witness comes after the trial of our faith. We must believe if we want to see. As I've said, it is faith that pierces the veil. Oh my goodness, it's all so beautiful, but I'm going to jump to verse 26. Oh then, if I have seen so great things, and I guess my question would be, let us see them. Let us not be myopic. Let us trust in the promises God has made. Let's reread our patriarchal blessings, but let's read the scriptures and all the amazing promises that they make to those who believe, to those who trust, to those who follow Jesus. If I have seen so great things, if the Lord in his condescension unto the children of men hath visited men in so much mercy, why should my heart weep and my soul linger in the valley of sorrow and my flesh waste away and my strength slacken because of mine afflictions? And I'm hearing that from so many of you who have gone through hard things and have felt all of those things happening, because all of that can happen. We're human. We can weep and linger in the valley of sorrow. Our flesh can practically waste away. Our strength slacken because of our afflictions. We all know what that's like. And Nephi knows what it's like, great spiritual titan that he is. And why should I yield to sin because of my flesh? Now, I'm going to suggest that when we are sorrowing and so on, yes, it can. If it gets overdone, it can lead to sin, even if it's the sin of omission, that we stop feeling the love of God, that we stop trusting, that we stop pursuing with vigor and determination and commitment, the path of discipleship. If we stop being diligent, then we yield to sin. How tragic is that when we are believers and we want all that God offers and we have tried to do his will? Let's not get lost in that last detour, which is so easy to fall into in our pain and sorrow, but we can come out. Skipping again. Awake, my soul. Rejoice, O my heart. Give place no more for the enemy of my soul. 
I'm picking and choosing a little bit. That's verse 28. Rejoice, O my heart, verse 30, and cry unto the Lord and say, O Lord, I will praise thee forever. Yea, my soul will rejoice in thee, my God and the rock of my salvation. O Lord, wilt thou redeem my soul? Wilt thou deliver me out of the hands of mine enemies, even if those enemies are sorrow or pain or discouragement, despair? It could be because of our own weaknesses and iniquities. It could be because of someone else's, or it could just be because we are in the valley of the shadow. And that is a necessary part of this life to take our turn in the refiner's fire. I love all these words. I hate to skip any, but I'm going to get to verse 34. Oh Lord, I have trusted in thee and I will trust in thee forever. I will not put my trust in the arm of flesh for I know that cursed is he that putteth his trust in the arm of flesh. Skipping to verse 35, I know that God will give liberally to him that asketh. That's a message that I got very recently. Well, I've gotten it a few times. Actually, (laughs) probably many times in these recent weeks. That God will give liberally to him that asketh. It's come from many places and from the Spirit itself telling me, don't fail to ask for what you need. Now the Lord will give to us according to his will and what will fulfill the purposes of our existence here and give us the best opportunity to become what we can become. But let's read the rest of this verse. Yea, my Lord will give me if I ask not amiss, and I can learn to be tutored by the Spirit in what I ask for. Therefore, I will lift up my voice unto thee, yea, I will cry unto thee, my God, the rock of my righteousness. Behold, my voice shall forever ascend up unto thee, my rock and my everlasting God. Amen. Just a few closing words. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of men the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Now, we have heard that so many times, but that is something I cling to. I hope we all cling to it, each one of us in whatever our condition and season of life and circumstances, that there is a promise that we will not be short-sighted about, that we will keep our eye on this promise, knowing that God is a God of truth and he fulfills all his promises. And then I noticed verse 10 as I went back and read this again. This is 1 Corinthians Chapter 2, verse 10, right after the promise. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Now, notice that. I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered in the heart of man. But God has revealed them to Paul and his associates through the Spirit. And you know what, brothers and sisters, we can get our glimpse too. We can ask for it. We can seek it. We can try to find it in scriptures and in the beautiful hymns and other uplifting music. We can find it in the actions of people around us, the examples of people around us, past, present. We can be taught the deep things of God. The mysteries can be revealed. And Nephi must have seen that. That's what he was talking about. That 
he had gotten these visions at night. These He had been taken to a high mountain and shown amazing things. Let's not sell our potential short. Let's seek to have a vision of those things. It may not be a formal vision, but that doesn't mean we cannot trust the vision of others. Remember, that's one of the gifts of the Spirit, that we believe on the words of others. We hear a testimony, we read scriptures, and we believe. Let's have them revealed to us in whatever way is needful and appropriate for us at this point and keep seeking and searching so that we will never be myopic. Again, brothers and sisters, let me thank you for all the messages, emails, cards, and letters. I cannot reply to all of them as I wish I could, but they mean a great deal. I have many dear friends who are making themselves available to do whatever they can to mourn with me and give me love and comfort. And all kinds of neighbors and friends are offering concrete help with the unfinished business in my house, upstairs and downstairs, as we still are trying to do the flood recovery down and upstairs is not complete. And all the sifting, cleaning, and reorganization that will be required even when the construction is finished. It can be overwhelming. And people are offering such support and help. I'm so grateful. I can't even receive it all. My own children, of course, have been marvelous and are demonstrating their commitment to caring for me in any way they can. I don't want to be a burden. They are making themselves available as they're able to help me with all kinds of things and to be there in every way. I don't want to be a burden. Of course, it's so much easier to give than to receive. Nevertheless, I am trying to be a gracious receiver of this outpouring, and I am definitely leaning on others. When I am feeling sad and alone, there are quite a few people that I can call, and I'm so grateful for that. And believe me, I have called them, and I do, and I will. However, in the midst of all this help and support, I have felt the Spirit prompt me to not always reach for the phone or text to call or contact a dear friend, but to make sure I don't miss this opportunity to reach further to my Savior, Jesus Christ. It's easy and comforting to have someone right there, even if it's just through their voice or their text, let alone when they sit there with me, or I can feel them with their arm around my shoulder or holding my hand or just there to let their presence comfort me. That's a wonderful gift. But I don't want to miss this opportunity to reach for Jesus Christ. Because ultimately, that is the path of sanctification that I want to complete, where I can see his face because I have come to him in every way that he invites. I've said this before. How do we think our spirits are refined and our souls tempered? In the good times? At the spa? It's in the furnace of affliction. It's in the wilderness. It's in these times of loss or sorrow or trial or trouble and pain. That's when we can do our best growing, our best strengthening. We've all had times of rebellion where We could write our own psalm, like Nephi, wretched man that I am, 
And I personally find it to be very healthy, and I advise all of us to do the detox writing I've talked about in the past. Pour it out. Put it into words. Give those feelings a voice, and then rip, shred, burn, or delete. Let them go, and let ourselves feel the love of God. And I hope we always end those detox sessions with pondering the love of God for us and for all of his children. And this verse has been on my mind too, Romans 8, verses 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? You know, I was talking to a friend not long ago, and he said, yeah, like, now I've hit my limit. Like, like now I've hit my limit. I can take all this other trouble, but that's too much. This is a bridge too far. Now I'm done. Like, really? I'm going to let that separate me from the love of Christ? Like, why would I do that? What limits? What am I not willing to bear for the honor of Christ? What cross am I going to throw overboard because I won't take it? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Look at that switch of thought. Yeah, we're killed all the day long and we are as sheep for the slaughter. But in all these things we are more than conquerors through Christ and his love for us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I add my witness to Paul's. I don't want anything to separate me from feeling his love, from taking it in, and from profiting thereby. He is the one who teaches us to profit in every way that matters. It is the eternal profit that he offers. I have not seen, neither ear heard, but we can get a glimpse. Brothers and sisters, let's choose glory. Let's build Zion. Let's become Zion people. I know we can. And we don't do it alone. We help each other. But Christ is our ultimate strength always and forever, the rock of our salvation. Let me quickly mention that I will be putting some content on Patreon to help us find joy and rejoicing in our children when we are moms at home, especially, or parents at home. That will take a little while to put together. I'll let you know when it's available. As ever, thanks to my husband, Chris Anderson, and to Doug Larson of Point Digital. Take care.